The following podcast is produced or sponsored by a community member. The content, views, and opinions ex- expressed are those of the participants and do not reflect those of BMC or the town of Belmont. BMC welcomes your comments. Call us at 617-484-2443 or email us at access at belmontmedia.org. Hello again, and welcome to another edition of the TOST Toddcast here on the Belmont Media Podcast Network, found online at belmontmedia.org slash podcasts, and also at soundcloud.com by searching Belmont Media. You can listen to the Toddcast at your convenience by downloading the free SoundCloud app, available on both iTunes and Google Play stores. I'm Todd Bloniars from the award-winning Time Out for Sports Talk TV show, available on BMC Channels 9 and 29, and also on demand at belmontmedia.org. And we're uh, very pleased to uh, bring back onto the Toddcast uh, someone we had on prior to Super Bowl 52, who was uh, dead on with a lot of his uh, analysis. And so we're happy to bring him back again. That would be uh, Evan Lazar, uh, whose work you can read on patspulpit.com, as well as in the Boston Herald. And he also hosts the uh, Boston Herald's Naked Bootleg podcast, which, much like our TOST Toddcast, can be found on SoundCloud. And uh, the Twitter handle uh, for the Naked Bootleg podcast is at Naked Boot Pod. And the best way to follow Evan on Twitter is at Easy Lazar. Evan, great to have you back with us here on the Toddcast. Yeah, I guess I did good the first time if I'm welcome back the second. <laughs> well, you certainly did. Boy, I mean, uh, you know, I went back and listened uh, to a little bit of our first uh, podcast, and then I, I went and uh, caught a little bit of your Naked Bootleg uh, Super Bowl recap, and uh, I, I really have to commend you, Evan. I mean, you know, you certainly put in the work. One of the reasons we brought you on is because you you're, you're actually give a nice analytical take and not all these, like, hot takes that you hear in the in the sports radio universe uh so there was that and uh you you really put the time in and the effort to to come up with solid analysis and most of it kind of played out in the game even though i know you both you and i picked the patriots to win the game uh everything we th- everything you thought could have happened at least as far as the eagles having some success uh you, you tended to call most of it and uh now looking back just your your overall thoughts on the game i mean i guess the big question right off the bat is of course the whole mysterious malcolm butler uh, where was he i mean we saw him for one play on special teams for a guy who played uh, over 97% of the defensive snaps this year and uh, you know, before before you say anything, Evan, I just want to mention that my original take watching this game was I'm not 100% sure Evan, uh, that uh, Malcolm Butler would have made a difference in this game as far as trying to stop the Eagles' defense, but I have to respect your take on this and some of your tweets and whatnot because uh, you're kind of making me rethink this, and I know you also watched the game a second time uh, kind of up close, and uh, so just your, your general thoughts uh, on, on Super Bowl 52. Yeah, you know, I'm kind of kicking myself that I picked the Patriots. It's probably a little bit of my fandom seeping in because, really, it was staring right at me that this was a terrible matchup for the Pats, especially the Pats' defense. And I think we all knew that the Eagles' offense, if they stuck to their guns and they they kept the foot on the gas, so to speak, that they were going to be able to score points against the Patriots' defense, especially just with the style of offense that they run very similar to, you know, Kansas City's offense or something along those lines. You know, but in terms of the Malcolm Butler thing, I think the, the biggest reason why I said what I said, which is basically that I think that Butler would have had a huge impact on this game, was mainly because not only did it affect 
the matchups, you know, directly because of Malcolm Butler, but it also indirectly affected how the Patriots were able to do things on defense. You know, obviously we know that Malcolm Butler is not a safety. Uh, he's not Jordan Richards. He's not going to be covering any running backs as a slot or covering Zach Ertz as a tight end or, you know, whatever it may be. So it's not a direct comparison. But the point is, is that without Butler on the field, it put Patrick Chung in that slot cornerback role instead of his hybrid safety linebacker role, which then put Jordan Richards on the field. And it also, in turn, put Chung in a position, you know, he's kind of the guy that I feel almost the worst for because Chung's a really, really good player, and he was put in a position by the coaching staff that he just flat out could not win uh, playing against in the slot against Nelson Aguilar, who's just extremely fast and a really well uh, fine-tuned wide receiver going up against the safety. I mean, that's just a matchup that the Patriots aren't going to win, uh, you know, consistently, let alone doing it for nearly 75% of the snaps that they played where that was kind of the matchup. So it was kind of just a ripple effect. And Butler also, you know, it's one more matchup where the Patriots could have put Butler, whether it was on Torrey Smith or on, on Aguilar, or you put Rowe on Aguilar and James Butler on Smith or whatever it may have been. It was just one more matchup that a guy could actually make a play for the Patriots. You know, it was just one more. You had Stephon Gilmore in the back end. You, you liked where you were going to put Patrick Chung, although the game didn't work out that way, you know, against Zach Ertz and the original game plan that we kind of outlined when I was on before the Super Bowl. And then, obviously, you liked wherever you put Butler on the field. I mean, this is the game that the guy made his bread in, you know, uh, by making a, the most timely interception in the history of the game. So it's, uh, it's, it was a bummer to not see him out there. But I certainly would have picked the Eagles if I had known that Butler wasn't going to play. Yeah, well, and, you know, we talked about Aguilar uh, certainly being an X factor uh, in the Super Bowl, and, and he was, as it turned out. Another thing, I'm looking through some of the, the stuff you wrote prior to the game, and uh, you were talking about maybe a formula for success for the Patriots defense would be to maybe copy uh, the Atlanta Falcons formula. I guess they had played mostly uh, press cover one man, cover three zone in the secondary. This is, this is again, from your notes. And then uh, you uh, mentioned here, and this is the part I wanted to highlight, you said uh, uh, kind of a hybrid safety playing as a third linebacker. He said, this is the role that Patrick Chung will most likely play on Sunday, and although he doesn't get the credit he deserves, he does it better than just about anyone in the NFL, and I, I guess maybe there, as you just said, to your point, Evan, that's not the role he ended up playing in the game because of the trickle-down effect of uh, a Butler's absence, which I, I have to admit, I didn't realize at the time I was watching the game. Right, yeah, that was the big one that stings when you read it back, because uh, it, it seems like such an obvious matchup, and Keanu Neal, who's the Falcon safety that, that most you know mostly does that, is an all-pro, is a fantastic player. But Patrick Chung is, is just as good in a lot of respects and has really been the heart and soul of this Patriots defense over the last couple of years, kind of an underrated player uh, in, in the NFL world, I would say. And it, it's, it's just a bummer that we didn't at least get to see them try that formula. And uh, and not it's not even to pick on Jordan Richards because Jordan Richards shouldn't have been on the field in the first place, and uh, and you know it, it's it's a coaching thing. It's obviously a Belichick thing. Uh, they could have done things differently in the Super Bowl that would have been better. You know, in terms of coaching, you know, they could have uh, they could have tried to to do things a little bit differently in terms of who Stephon Gilmore was matched up against. He was you know 
early on in the game, they were playing sides with him and Eric Rowe, which means that they weren't traveling with receivers, and that turns out that it led to a matchup with Eric Rowe on Alshon Jeffrey for a touchdown, a big touchdown early on in the game. That if Gilmore's in coverage, you don't know if it would have gone differently, but you hope it would as a Patriots fan. And then the other really big coaching mistake that I thought that they made, other than just the, you know, the Butler situation, whether you want to call that a mistake or not, was really that they, they blitzed Foles, but they didn't do it well. And they really they blitzed Foles 20 times, but they didn't get a lot of immediate pressure. And, and a lot of that, I thought, was watching the game back a couple times, was that they blitzed a lot from depth. And what I mean by that is, is that the linebackers had a lot of delayed inside blitzes. So you had Alondon Roberts blitzing from five to eight yards away on a delayed blitz. And what happened was two things. Is one, it allowed the Eagles' offensive line to see them coming. And you watch that game back, and there's so many instances where an offensive lineman just out of nowhere comes off of his man and, and chips on Alondon Roberts at the very last second to avoid a sack. And the other thing is, is that Foles saw it coming from a mile away too. So he's staring down the blitz, and he's staring down the blitzer. He knows the clock in his head that he knows, you know. He's got to get rid of the football, and he was just hot routing over the middle, especially of the field to his receivers, and just dumping these little passes out, you know, behind the blitzes and behind, uh, right behind the blitzer, over the middle or to his right, that were just easy pick apart the defense type passes, especially when when the Patriots were in zone coverages. So I think that they could have, you know, really the only thing that they could have done, coaching wise, schematically in the second half, other than putting Malcolm Butler in the game, of course, was to just bring the house. They could have loaded the line of scrimmage. They could have blitzed six or seven guys at a time, played man coverage on the back end, and just prayed that it, that it held up. And that might have worked. It might have worked. But that was really the only strategy. A lot of people are saying, oh, this is a debacle of a coaching game, which obviously the, the 41 points, it ultimately falls on the coaching staff. I mean, I think we can all agree with that. But the point of the matter is, is okay, but what could they have actually done schematically? What calls could they have made? What adjustments could they have made that would have helped matters? And other than bringing immediate pressure up the A-gap and, and, and bringing a lot of six- and seven-man pressures and just praying that the coverage held up, I'm not really sure what the other solution really was. And obviously they didn't feel comfortable Big part of that was not having your second best corner on the on the field while it was happening, and they obviously didn't feel comfortable, you know, doing that. So they they played a little bit uh, more off the line of scrimmage. Yeah, you said that they blitzed twenty times in that game because Evan, I, I barely noticed that they blitzed that much. Not to mention that that's so out of character for a Patriots te- a defense that really didn't blitz that much all season. Yeah, they blitzed twenty times, which is the second highest blitz percentage in a game this season for the Patriots. And uh, it was a lot of delayed inside linebacker blitzes, which does work against this, this you know, Eagles Chiefs, uh, I call it West Coast College style offense. The college obviously being the RPO and spread elements that are they incorporated into the old fashioned, you know, Bill Walsh West Coast offense. And basically, you know, they blitzed a lot, but a lot of the pressures were five or six man pressures, you know, not really uh, exotic or, or big time blitzes, more just like, firing an extra linebacker or firing an extra guy off the edge or something like that. Not your prototypical bring-the-house, you know, type blitz. 
Yeah, and uh, right. So, you know, I'm looking at this uh, again, you know, talking about the rest of the secondary here and the trickle-down effect of Butler not playing. Uh, another thing you mentioned in one of your, your post-game articles, uh, Chung playing a season-high 43 snaps as a slot cornerback, which uh, was, was more than he had played in that position all season. Again, you, uh, you know, the trickle-down effect about players out of position or playing positions they weren't necessarily used to. Uh Go, I'll go back to Butler, though, here again. Uh, my, my initial thought, just watching the game live as it happened, and I, I came out of the game feeling not so much mad or angry, but disappointed uh, that they, they could not win that game. And I, I kept thinking to myself, well, you know, watching Butler as I had all season, and I, I didn't necessarily think that he, he was going to make that much of a difference the way the game played out. I know you're talking about here the, the whole trickle-down effect, but... You know, Butler in the two prior playoff games, I believe only had a total of four tackles, which is as many tackles as Eric Rowe made. I know people are going to say, well, Rowe just looked horrendous in, in the Super Bowl. But, you know, number-wise, I mean, things were pretty comparable. And, again, this was just not a Malcolm Butler type of season. Still, it's a huge shock that he didn't play you know, at all, except for that one snap on special teams, which might have been more had Philly had to punt more, but um, but they only punted once the whole game. So, you know, again, go back to your, I mean, were you just surprised that, you know, that they didn't, the Patriots uh, defensive coaching staff, they didn't make the necessary adjustments and that, you know, Butler never found his way into the game, even as the Patriots defense was getting torched all night? Yeah, I was surprised. I mean, when you watch them get torched over and over again, it's, really difficult to not, you know, think that they're going to put the guy on the field, you know. And the other thing that was difficult to figure out was all year, really, and, and for a lot of years, you know, we've always seen the Patriots in the second half come out with some sort of adjustment, right? You know, they gave up 22 points in the first half, and that wasn't that surprising to me. What I figured would happen was that the Eagles would score 10 in the second half. Because that's just, you know, what we've seen so often from this team is that they the fourth quarter especially teams have a lot of trouble scoring on them especially uh recently in this last year if you look at you know the AFC championship game for example the Jaguars couldn't score they couldn't score late they couldn't move the ball late and that was a big part of why the Patriots were able to come back in that game you know this game it just never happened that that stop never happened and I guess but that not saying that you know Butler was having a good, a good year, and I actually, the more that I've thought about it, I kind of have come to the conclusion that maybe the coaches, especially uh, the Patriots coaches, uh, maybe Butler was having a worse season than we thought. You know, that's one thing is, is that I, I, as much as I don't want to belittle myself, you know, I don't know the play calls. So when I'm watching this game tape, like, I guess, okay, I can see that this guy is out of position. I can see that this guy doesn't react to the play properly. Or this looks like coverage, and this guy doesn't play his technique properly. But at the end of the day, you know, Bill Belichick, Matt Patricia, those guys know every single play call and exactly where a guy like Malcolm Butler is supposed to be on every single play call. And there is the possibility that maybe Malcolm Butler, he was having a bad season by his standards to our estimation. Now imagine how bad it could have possibly been if we knew the assignment. And that's kind of where you, it gets off the rails a little bit in terms of putting him in the game late. It's like, you know, at what point do you kind of just give up on your ego, for lack of a better word, with Bill Belichick, and you put him in the game? The Patriots' adjustment in the second half was to put Johnson Batamosi in the game. 
and they go and claim after the game that it had to do with him practicing that role more than Butler and how that he was more comfortable than Butler in the slot and the sixth defensive back and all this stuff, which I, I don't buy for two seconds. You know, that Malcolm Butler wasn't a better option on defense than Batamosi, a career special teamer. But that's no here nor there, really. Uh, yeah, it surprised me, I guess, long story short, that they didn't eventually put him in. But at the same time, it's kind of like once you make that decision, you can't then just all of a sudden go back on it. Like if you violated the team rule or something along those natures that put him in the doghouse, you can't all of a sudden just take him out of the doghouse because you get shredded. Yeah, and, you know, just you're right. I mean, you have to stand by your principles, even if for Belichick it, it may somehow, you know, it tarnishes his legacy because he, he doesn't, you know, win another Super Bowl, uh, certainly. But, again, he'd rather uh, he'd rather lose, I guess, the right way than win the wrong way in, in his mind. Uh, again, looking at, you know, but you're getting back to this defense, though. I mean, it was a collectively poor effort by any, everyone, uh, whether Butler's in there or not. I mean, another player, I, I was reading uh, uh, somebody else had uh, picked on uh, Mark Keith Flowers, I guess he was in on 17 plays, and on those 17 plays, the Eagles gained 214 yards and scored two touchdowns uh, for only 17 snaps. So I guess when he was in the game, certainly was not effective, including on that uh, touchdown by Corey Clement, uh, where uh, Flowers had to cover, you know, the old linebacker on the on the small running back who's got the speed and the moves, and uh, Flowers, uh, as he did through most of his 17 snaps, was uh, consistently getting burned out there. Yeah, you know, it's tough because I actually saw him retweet the article you're talking about and kind of give, I think it was Greg Bedard, gave through some shade at Greg Bedard. For, for Boy, you're, you're good, Evan. You picked it right out. It was Bedard. I wasn't going to leave his name out, but <laughs> that's okay. I was not too happy about the article <laughs> on Twitter. But, uh, yeah, him and Jordan Richards were uh, as, as catastrophic as you could possibly be. And, and Batamosi, really. Those three, when they were on the field, the Patriots' defense was significantly below league average. You know, talking uh, monumental numbers when they, those three guys were either targeted or on the field. So it's um, it, it was tough to see, and, and you really have to give Doug Peterson all the credit in the world because one thing that he was able to do, this is kind of going back to the Butler thing when I was talking about, it's just one more matchup that kind of is closer to 50-50 instead of being so heavily in favor of the Eagles. Peterson basically just picked out matchups all over the field all night long. He ran that wheel route with the running back twice. One time, Clement got up the sideline against Jordan Richards, caught a pass for 55 yards. They came back to the same exact play, but they put Clement on the other side of Foles. He ran up the other side on a wheel route, and this time it was against Marquise, Marquise Flappers instead of Richards, and it still went for a touchdown. It's like, you know, it, it was just these matchups just and all across the board favored the Eagles offense so heavily, and there was nothing that the Patriots could really do uh, that, would, that would change that because it is, at the end of the day, you know, in New England especially, I think we get caught up in the X's and O's, the schematics point of view and all that stuff because we have Bill Belichick as the coach. So you know that you have the, the schematic, you know, maestro at the wheel, so to speak. So then when you look at the game like this and you're like, what happened? Where were the adjustments? Where was the coaching staff? Where was the, you know, the 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 better play calls and all this stuff? And you ask yourself, you know, did Bill Belichick forget how to coach or did the Patriots just not have the players? And you kind of have to lean towards the Patriots not having the players. That's not just to 
completely you know, free Belichick of any responsibility, obviously. But I think it's obvious that, you know, Bill Belichick didn't just forget how to coach defense. Like, or like that he didn't, you know, that he had this terrible, terrible game coaching defense because they scored all these points against them. At the end of the day, football is football, and you line 11 guys up against 11 guys, and your 11 needs to beat their 11. It's man-on-man. It's uh, who's faster, who's stronger, who's better on that day. And the coaching staff, to be honest with you, can only do so much at the end of the day when you have a matchup like a Corey Clement against the Marquise Flowers, which is just a mismatch. And, you know, sure, could they have maybe figured out ways to, to better, you know, put somebody better on, on Clement once the game went along and it looked like he was going to be a factor? Yeah, absolutely. But when you take Butler out of the equation, you know, who is that guy? You know, it can't be Patrick Chung because he's in the slot. It can't be Devin McCourty because he's covering Zach Ertz. So it's like, where does that guy come from? Uh, and that's kind of the trickle-down effect of Butler being out. Yeah, and you mentioned, of course, uh, Evan, that you know the it was more of the well. I, I think it was fifty-one forty-nine in favor of the. They didn't have the, enough personnel. Although you can put some of that on Belichick, not so much as the coach, but Belichick, the general manager, uh, to have that roster. Of course, that's a whole. I mean, we could go off on a whole other show talking about that part of it. So instead, we'll kind of uh, move on here and uh, you know just look at uh, again. You brought up some some other great stats here. It was or actually. I think you brought up some of these in your uh, Naked Bootleg podcast. You talked about uh, the Eagles with 193 yards after contact. You talked about the Patriots missing 15 tackles. Boy, I, I thought it was a lot more than that. And then uh, you, you talked about their third down prowess, which was something I had written up myself, uh, you know, even before listening to uh, to your podcast. But, uh, you know, 12 of 18 on third and fourth down. And, in fact, Foles ends up going uh, in three playoff games, went 26 for 43 three on third down conversions and I know again Peterson deserves a lot of the credit there too another thing and a big difference from this Super Bowl to the one last year with Atlanta I I remember breaking down the yardage numbers for Atlanta and on uh, they, they had 10 offensive series and on the first play of each of their 10 drives they had almost half of their total yards for the game and so the Patriots defense was able to buckle down after that initial first play of every drive and and really kind of stop the Falcons and that was really what they could not do in this Super Bowl with the Eagles as the Eagles end up uh, on their third and fourth down plays they end up uh, gaining 206 of their 538 total yards just a little under 40 percent of their total yards for the game came on third and fourth down and again the Patriots you know, have been known all year as kind of a bend but don't break defense. And this was the night where, unfortunately, they broke and broke in a big way. Yeah, I mean that, that's what I said. I mean, I think the main thing with the third and fourth down defense that you, that you have to keep in mind though is that there was a lot of third and fourth and short. You know, there wasn't a whole lot of third and ten. <laughs> like it was, it was third and five, third and one, third and three, third and two. Those are really especially against a great play caller like Doug Peterson, those are really tough situations to get off the field. And one of the things I wrote about that was kind of, you know, where I thought the game was won and lost was that the Eagles were really, really unpredictable on third on third down, especially because they were running the ball so well on early downs, and especially out of shotgun and out of three wide receiver sets, that the Patriots' defense was on its heels the entire game because of the play calling. So, you know, the Eagles had the ability to spread the Patriots out, put their running backs in shotgun, and still run the ball right down their throats. 
even with that, with less, you know, uh, offensive linemen or, or not an extra tight end or a fullback. You know, that's not the type of Eagles running game that really beat them. What beat them was shotgun runs out of, out of three wide receiver sets, and that's been an Achilles heel for the Patriots all year. And what that really did was is that it kept them on their heels. They, there was no one thing that the Patriots could stop that they knew that the Eagles couldn't call. So that was a big part of it. You know, you look at that Jacksonville game, the Patriots really loaded up against the run against their two tight end sets and their fullback sets, and they were able to stop it. But when the Jaguars spread them out, they weren't able to stop it like they weren't able to stop it against the Eagles. But the issue was is that the Jaguars team were not used to running the ball in spread formations. They were a power smash mouth football team. You know, put an extra tight end in the game, put a fullback in the backfield in front of Leonard Fournette, and let them run people over that played directly into the Patriots' hands because they were able to put bigger guys like a Ricky Jean Francois and, and, and an extra linebacker like an Alandon Roberts or something along those lines and really stop the run. And the same thing happened against Tennessee, too. And then the Eagles just didn't let them off the hook. And that really led them in the situation of limbo. And when you're a defense and you can't take one thing away and you can't make the play calling predictable, it's already tough enough to stop some of these offenses when you know what's coming, but when you don't know what's coming on every single play, it becomes even tougher. Well, and to sum that up, best might be, and again, just a huge credit here to, to Doug Peterson and that, you know, calling the offense, along with Frank Reich, the, the new coach of the Indianapolis Colts, <laughs> by the way. Uh, yeah. can, that, that's a whole other subject, uh, which we can, if we may not have time to get into, we may have to save that for a different show as well. But, uh, you know, the play that sums it up best was, you talk about the, you, the Patriots not really knowing what to defend. How about the fact that Philly calls a trick play that they haven't run all season? In fact, they borrowed it from uh, Frank Reich, I guess, was watching Green Bay in Chicago, and he saw them run that that play where the quarterback went out uh, and he caught the pass where, you know, obviously Foles with that big touchdown pass at the end of the first half uh, that extended the lead at halftime. And what a huge, you know, again, the Patriots, you know, you have to think, how do I outcoach, Be- if I'm Doug Peterson, how do I outcoach Belichick? I have to come up with something he's not expecting, and you know he's probably checking out all of Philly's trick plays over the years, so let's run a trick play that we haven't run ever. And it worked, even though uh, the little caveat to that was apparently based on some video uh, snapshots. Uh, the Eagles were illegally lined up, and the play shouldn't have counted. But you still have to I give them credit for, for running the play or trying it and, and having success with it. Yeah, they did that a couple times, actually, where they ran plays. At least a little part of the play was different than what they had ran it in the past. They had never ran the play with that exact look. And that was what happened also on the uh, on Zach Ertz's game-winning touchdown. They did what's called a star motion, where the the wide receiver motions from a uh, or the running back, excuse me, motions from an outside wide receiver position back into the butt to the backfield, and that kind of dictates the coverage to the quarterback. Does somebody follow him? Does it not? You know, and also kind of puts them in a situation where like, okay, now what are they doing? Are they running? Are they passing? And what ended up happening was is they, in that particular situation, they ended up letting Zach Ertz get covered one-on-one by Devin McCourty, and we all know how that ended. And on the trick play, I was screaming at my TV because the college teams, you know, this is one thing. is The Eagles don't haven't run it in the past, but in the college game, this play gets ran all the time on the goal line. And, you know, you hate to do the hindsight thing, but in hindsight, really, it's, it's it's kind of baffling to me that when the Patriots saw that that Nick Foles went in that kind of behind the line of scrimmage 
uh, you know, stance that he was in, that nobody covered him out of the backfield, that nobody had ever seen that play before. Because it's not even if Corey Clement takes it himself, if one of the edge guys commits to covering holes, I mean, he's still got uh, you know four or five bodies inside to stop the, the little wildcat run that they might have ran. And if he scores, he scores. But to get scored on on a trick play like that was that was tough to watch because I'm sure that some of those guys on the field have seen that before in their in their NFL or, or college careers. Yeah, and of course, to add insult to injury, the Patriots tried, well, not the exact same play, but certainly uh, a play where Brady was supposed to try to catch a pass, and uh, unfortunately Amendola threw it a little bit high for him. Yeah. Yeah, it depends on who you ask if Brady dropped it or if Amendola threw it high. You're talking to a Patriots fan, the throw is bad. <laughs> well, yeah, well, the truth is you're throwing it to a 40-year-old receiver who's not used to catching passes. <laughs> That's, uh, I think you got to put it right on his hands if you're going to make that play work. But, uh, again, you know, we could debate about that for hours on end, I'm sure. Uh, let's just flip this really quick and, you know, talk about the offense, which I guess there's really not much to complain about. I mean, Tom Brady throws for a... a, a the second most yards in his career in a game, certainly the most in playoff history, 505 yards. Um, in fact, usually when Brady passes for this many yards, he tends to win the game more often than not compared to the average quarterback. But, you know, in the end, it just it, it still wasn't enough that you could argue about the, you know, the points they might have left on the field in the first half. Oh, and I, I also want to uh, commend you again because another thing you said, Evan, uh, you were talking about the freshness of the uh, uh, the defensive uh, front seven for uh, Philadelphia, and uh, you even referred to Brandon Graham in our last podcast as a tactician, and uh, whether he was, uh, was fully employing that tactician uh, method on that uh, strip sack, uh, that was still a, a huge play and uh, certainly turned the game and, for all intents and purposes, uh, really uh, clinched it for the Eagles. Yeah, yeah. You know, that that inside pass rush from Brandon Graham against Joe Tooney or Shaq Mason is something that a lot of people were talking about before the game as a possible matchup to watch for the Eagles. They didn't do it that often. They only did it seven times, but obviously the one time was the one that mattered. And uh, in terms of the offense, you know, uh, a lot of people, the Patriots haters, will say, well, Brady was throwing out to a lot of wide-open guys. That's definitely true. There was a lot of wide-open receivers. This wasn't necessarily a game where Brady was throwing the ball into tight windows, kind of like you know, the Jacksonville game was like an all-time great fourth-quarter performance from Brady because he was just fitting the ball in, into places that it just didn't deserve to go. But he was willing it there, and... Uh, you know, in the Super Bowl, I really thought that Brady and, and McDaniels called a terrific, terrific game against the Eagles defense. They were uh, getting busted coverage after busted coverage against the, the Eagles zone. Those crossing routes uh, were a big part of the game plan. Post-wheel concepts on the outside were a big part of the game plan. And the Eagles just couldn't stop it. And it was a testament almost to, you know, how quickly – uh, it's kind of like a football junkie thing with being this game, not necessarily like if you break down the 10 best throws of Tom Brady's Super Bowl 52 performance. It's definitely not a game where he had, uh, you know, 10 amazing throws. But what he did was he was able to process things at an extremely quick rate, and his, the ball was coming out of his hands as soon as the receiver, uh, you know, put his foot in the ground, and as soon as the receiver was open, and a lot of those play action passes too. I mean, that's Brady. That's 
uh, the threat uh, of the running game too, but it's also the way that Brady sells the fake, and then he's able to get his eyes up so quickly and find the open receiver and get the ball out so fast. It's uh, it's pretty amazing to watch. There's nobody in the NFL that processes his reads or goes through his reads and progressions as quickly as Tom Brady. It's not even close. Uh, there, there's other guys that can do it quickly that that are, excel at that sort of thing, but in terms of uh, of how quickly he decides to throw the ball, it is uh, pretty remarkable. Uh, I don't know if any quarterback, maybe Peyton Manning or, or or someone along those lines, comes close to him. But in terms of quarterbacks that we've seen in uh, the 2017 season, uh, he he is by far the best. Well, and that's why he was the MVP. Unfortunately, of course, the MVP curse continues. That's nine straight MVPs now that have lost uh, the Super Bowl in the same season. But but again, just to your point, Evan, as putrid as the Patriots defense played that whole game, when Brady got the ball with about 220 left and the Pats were down five, I mean, you know, you're, you're watching the game, I'm watching the game, and we're both kind of feeling the same thing probably that we're anticipating that Brady's going to do what he's been doing all along. You know, 54 come from behind uh, playoff wins, and, uh, you know, you just fully are, are 54 all-time wins. I think it's 11 in the playoffs. But, uh, you know, again, you're, you're just expecting him to march the team down the field for the game-winning score to kind of negate how poor the defense had played all evening. And it just, you know, it, that's what made kind of the strip sack so surprising. It, it, it came out of the blue, the only uh, the only turnover, the only sack uh, by either team in the whole game. And so, but yeah, it just, it, like you said, Brady, you, you expect him or you at least anticipate that he's going to put the team in a position there, or, uh, get the team down the field and, and a chance to, to win the game with a touchdown. Yeah, I, I have an article I think coming out tomorrow about Brady. My lead in it is uh, is just basically how when he was laying there on the on the turf after the uh, after the strip sack, you kind of could see in his eyes just his look of sudden shock. Like, how did that just happen? I'm Tom Brady. I've done this a million times, right? You know, two minutes left, down five. I got the ball in the Super Bowl. How he's done it? Really, he's done it eight times, and uh, and it's just one of those things where you could just tell by the look on his face that he was just in disbelief that he could possibly have fumbled on that play. He had what he wanted. The the corner route to Gronkowski was open. He was about to throw the ball, and then just out of nowhere, his arm gets hit by Brandon Graham, and you could just tell. You could tell that he was he was rattled. And after that, I mean, not to get on him too bad, but I mean. They were had a minute left, down eight with the ball, and the, the reverse on on the freaking return really screwed them. I mean, that was all time stupid. I've never seen anything like that from a Belichick coach team in that spot. I understood that they really weren't returning the ball well from the, the kick return team. Really wasn't uh, getting past the twenty easily, so they obviously tried to throw a little trick in there, but it obviously didn't work, and that was part of what backed them up. But after the fumble, you could tell that he, Brady he missed a couple throws early on in, in that last gas drive that might have been able to move the ball down the field a little bit quicker and, and might have put them in a position where they didn't have to throw a Hail Mary. And uh, and I think that, the uh, unfortunately, the sack fumble on the series before was kind of still in his head, like, I had it there. You know, I had number six. Uh, on my finger right there and I and I blew it and I blew it on the biggest stage and Tom Brady is the type of guy that talks about it a lot in time versus time uh Tom versus time that you know the pressure of not letting everybody down when you're Tom Brady is legitimate 
Uh, you know, and as much as we don't think that he thinks about that sort of thing, he might not be out there reading newspaper headlines or talking, you know, to media or whatever and caring about what they write about him or say about him on the radio. Uh, but I do think that he cares about letting his teammates down, letting his family down, you know, letting the people in his life down that have come grown so accustomed to watching him win year after year after year. And when you fumble it away in a game like that, he flat out says it. You know, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing that that you couldn't perform uh, on that type of stage. And, uh, and even for a guy that's won it five times, to have him still say that it's embarrassing to fumble like that is uh, is pretty remarkable quote. Yeah, it is. Don't forget, you, you left out there, Evan, uh, letting all the fans down, too, by <laughs> coming up uh, short. You know, as far as that, uh, the, the, the reverse on the kickoff return after they, they got the ball back down eight in the final minute, I mean, I chalked that up to just desperation. They were trying to make something happen there. Like you said, they were struggling with kickoff returns as it was. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, they're, you know, then at that point, you know, I was feeling when that possession happened. I mean, you know, once they're backed up at like the 10 yard line, I'm going a minute left, no timeouts for, for Brady. Yeah. Granted the, the odds that Brady could march him 90 yards with no timeouts in a minute is higher than it is for any other quarterback, but it's still slim. And, you know, at that point, again, it just goes back to the previous possession with the strip sack. And, you know, like you said, that's where Brady knew that they had it. I mean, that's where they had the field position. They still had a timeout. They still had the two-minute warning and plenty of time to get down the field. Uh, And it just, uh, again, uh, you know, we all kind of anticipated it was going to happen, maybe almost expected it, and it didn't. And uh, we're just kind of, we're left wondering. But as I said, it's hard to be really mad. I mean, I I kind of went into the this Super Bowl looking for the the symmetry of the Patriots were going to bookend these uh, you know the six Super Bowls three out of four the last one against Philadelphia on, on both ends of it and instead the symmetry or the coming full circle is that they they end up losing a Super Bowl to a team that uh, to a franchise that wins their very first championship they do so with a second year coach and they do it in a game where they went in as big underdogs and uh, kind of reminds you a little bit you go back to Super Bowl thirty six it, it's a full circle and then you brought up earlier uh, the whole full circle of uh, the, uh, the, you know, giving up the 42 points to Kansas City and playing a similar offense in, in Philadelphia. And and so the season, in a lot of ways, came full circle. It was bookended by two losses where the defense gave up a lot of points. Yeah, I feel like uh, all of us Patriots fans, Patriots media, a lot of us picked the Patriots for obvious reasons. And it was kind of staring at us in the face a little bit that the Eagles were just a bad matchup and that it probably wasn't going to go as well as we thought it was going to go. And then the other thing is is that in all of these Super Bowls, in all eight of them, they've all come down to the wire, and sometimes you just don't get the bounces, you know. Uh, the fumble, the strip sack, not to keep on killing Patriots fans by reliving that, but if you watch it again, it just takes an absolutely perfect bounce right to an Eagle. You know, it, it gets out of Tom Brady's hands. It's a live ball. He's laying there on the ground. He has no chance at it. But it really did take a nice little hop right into the arms of an eagle. I can't remember who it was, but it was a, it was a nice little hop. And those are just the little breaks, you know, that just sometimes, five times really, they've gone the Patriots' way, and three times they haven't. And that's why, you know, they're five and three. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, so we we try to uh, move on here, and uh, you know now it's uh, what what is next for this Patriots team? Uh, certainly, uh, Matt Patricia's moved on to Detroit. 
What were your thoughts on on the whole Josh McDaniels kind of 180 reversal? I mean, on the one hand, you know, uh, to be uh, – I'll tell you, the McDaniels thing had a little bit of shades, especially having watched the Two Bills documentary on ESPN uh, right just before the Super Bowl. It had shades of, you know, HC, the uh, NYJ, uh, Bill Belichick himself. I don't know if, he, if that's what he meant to teach Josh, but uh, – you know, the the, the last-minute change of heart, and he comes back to the Patriots, which I, I guess I would think in the short term is, is good for the Patriots. It's good for Brady. You've got that continuity. Perhaps if the, if the rumors of the friction between Brady and Belichick are true, then the buffer of McDaniels is staying in there as well. And uh, just what were your thoughts of that whole situation? Well, I think on one hand, uh, it was a very um, unprofessional thing of Josh McDaniels to do. This is like... I mean, the Belichick thing is is kind of similar, but this is completely, uh, you know, unprecedented to do this. Having other coaches hired for your staff, you know, they've already hired position coaches and coordinators, and they've already, you know, done all sorts of uh, legwork in terms of announcing the deal and announced that, that on Twitter, that, you know, two days after the Super Bowl, that Josh McDaniels is the next head coach of the Colts. And then he backs out. I mean, if you're a Colts fan or if you're an NFL fan in general, uh, this is a solid gripe with the Patriots, you know, especially if you're a Colts fan. I mean, I can totally understand why Indianapolis and why their GM, Chris Ballard, said what he said about the rivalry being back on. That stuff all makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, that that was not uh, the, the way to do things if you're Josh McDaniels necessarily. But, on the other hand, I do know that McDaniels is a family man first, and part of being an NFL coach, whether you know you're a position coach or a coordinator like McDaniels has been most of his career, is moving. And one thing that he has in New England that Indianapolis couldn't offer him is that stability, that continuity of keeping his kids in the same school, keeping him and his wife in the same home. You know, these are human beings. Uh, we thought, we think about it in terms of like how could you pass up a, a job to be the head coach of a football team in the NFL, and that's very true. But at the end of the day, you know he has to uproot his family, he has to uproot his kids out of school, and you know move to Indianapolis and get used to a different city. You know all those things that come to with moving for all of us, uh, you know non football uh, working professionals. We all know about that. So it's uh, it's one of those things where I think that the McDaniels family as a whole just couldn't come to terms with leaving the city of Boston. I think that that's honestly a bigger effect on it in a lot of ways than, you know, the actual coaching aspect of being, you know, in New England. So uh, there's no handshake deal from what I can understand. There's no, you know, wink, wink, nod, nod that he's going to be the next head coach of the Patriots. That's not a given, and I'm not surprised because I don't think that Bill Belichick's going to let anybody decide when he retires besides Bill Belichick. So uh, to say that it's, you know, kind of like Bill Belichick won last year and that McDaniels is going to take over, I don't know about all of that. Uh, But I certainly know that a big part of it uh, was keeping his family in the Boston area and how basically it was going to be really tough on his kids and on on his wife, but mostly his kids. Uh, to to pick up and move again. I mean, remember, they've been all over the place. They've been in in New England. They've been in Denver. They've been in St. Louis. They've been back to New England. Now they're going to move to Indy. You know, that's just kind of the life of a a head coach or a life football coach. But that wasn't something that McDaniels uh, could end up pulling the trigger on. 
So this had nothing to do with any medical reports on Andrew Luck, nor did it have anything to do with the uh, Patriot franchise getting revenge on the Colts for Deflategate. It definitely had nothing to do with Deflategate. <laughs> I can promise you that. Although I do think that maybe uh, part of Robert Kraft really didn't want to see McDaniels uh, coaching the Colts. I think that's definitely true. Uh, but I think that this it was mostly about football and the Andrew Luck thing. I mean, nobody knows, right? I mean, nobody knows what's up with his shoulder. So it's kind of hard to, to, you know, guess at, at what that, how that played a factor or didn't play a factor because we just don't know um, what's up with his shoulder. But if that came out, if it comes out and uh, let's say we're in September or at the end of training camp and, and uh, at the end of uh, at the preseason in August and, and Andrew Luck is still on the pup list and isn't playing, then maybe that will kind of put a little bit more, shed a little bit more light into why McDaniels didn't take the job. But I think it's tough to go there right now. All right. Well, one other uh, off-season question uh, would have to be Rob Gronkowski, who had a, a big Super Bowl, uh, led the team in uh, targets and receptions, uh, nine catches for 116 yards, two touchdowns, a lot of that coming in the second half after he really didn't do very much uh, over the first half of the game. And, of course, then all the rumors uh, coming out right after the game that uh, he's at least contemplating retirement, uh, whether he wants to go Hollywood or he wants to go – WWE. I mean, is this just a ploy for a little more money? Uh, is there? Is it the concussion? Maybe not, I don't want to say it knocked some sense into him, but did it? It was it like a wake up call for him to maybe think about other alternative uh, employment uh, that's a little less uh, dangerous to the head. Yeah, I mean, it's all a possibility. Obviously, I don't think any of us would blame Gronk for retiring because of the toll that football has had on his body. I mean, back surgeries, forearm surgeries, Achilles surgery, ACL, uh, concussions, you know, all those, he has taken a beating. He's, and we've watched it and we've, you know, kind of lived it through him because of how important he is to the Patriots on the field. You know, with every injury, you know, Patriots fans kind of have to deal with that fact that they're not going to see him out there, which always stinks uh, for the NFL in general when you're not seeing an all-pro like Gronkowski on the field on a regular basis in some situations. So it's not, you know, it's not completely out of left field that a guy that has taken so much, uh, you know, toll on his body would all of a sudden start contemplating retirement at age 28, 29. You know, we've seen plenty of other guys do uh, just that. You know, obviously the biggest one being like a Barry Sanders or someone like that that kind of hung it up, you know, a little bit before he really had to necessarily. Uh, But on the other hand, I would be absolutely shocked if Rob Gronkowski doesn't play next year. Uh, the Super Bowl loss, I think, kind of works two ways uh, into this. One, it's kind of hard to ask a guy that question after he just, you know, lost the Super Bowl. It's been like 20 minutes since the confetti fell on on the mall in different colors than the Patriots' colors, and you know, watched Nick Foles win MVP and hoist the Lombardi Trophy and all that stuff. You know, that's that's a tough time to kind of think about the future and on the other hand I think that it might motivate him to come back and win the thing he didn't wasn't playing in 2016 we got to remember that so he only has one true Super Bowl ring that I'm sure that he feels he earned uh which is part of it you know obviously 2014 will always live with him but now he's lost in the two Super Bowl games three Super Bowls that they've played in with Gronk on the team they've lost twice uh the one that he didn't play they won 
So it's kind of it's kind of interesting that uh, you know uh, that that's kind of the case for such a talented player. So uh, at the same time, I, I would be really shocked, and I think that most of it is probably contract situation. And uh, Drew Rosenhaus is his agent. We all know who he how he operates and how he uh, wants all the money in the world for all of his clients. And Gronk deserves to be played like the best tight end in the league. And I would expect the next deal that he signs, he will be paid like the best tight end in the league. So I think that retirement, holdout, uh, that type of stuff is really the only leverage that players have anyways. So maybe there's a little bit of that in there too. Yeah, I kind of agree with you, Evan. I can't imagine that he would walk away. He just loves the game of football so much. Uh, it just kind of like Brady. I mean, in some ways, the two are cut from a, a similar cloth. And I, I again, you know, I, I just don't think whether it's professional wrestling or it's uh, acting in movies is going to fill that same void for Gronk that uh, being out on the football field does. But uh, let me, uh, as we wrap up here, I, I, I'm going to kind of veer off of uh, football because I, I noticed on your Twitter uh, handle yesterday, of course, I know you are a fan of the other Boston sports teams, and you were tweeting a bit about uh, the Paul Pierce uh, retirement ceremony uh, with the Celtics yesterday. So uh, I didn't know if you had any thoughts you wanted to share. Uh, apparently, uh, I know given your age, I guess Paul Pierce really is the first Celtics star that you can kind of connect with uh, uh, for you know that great career that he had. And I guess what, what thoughts did, did you have yesterday while you were watching uh, his number getting hoisted to the rafters? Yeah, it was. Uh, I got to admit, it was pretty. It was pretty dusty in there for a few minutes. Uh, you know, he's definitely for my generation of Boston athletes. I was born in 1992. I'm 25 years old. You know, I was a huge basketball fan growing up. It was the sport that I played best. You know, actually played best. And uh, it, it, he was as much of a hero to me as anybody, as much as Tom Brady, David Ortiz, any of the Boston athletes were. And a big part of it was that, you know, born in in the early 90s, uh, I missed out on Larry Bird. I missed out on John Havlicek. I missed out on Bill Russell. I, you know, I missed out on that whole, the, really the, the, you know, great years of the Celtics or, or the, the dynasty years of the Celtics. Uh, us millennials didn't get to experience, unfortunately. So when it came to Pierce, you know, he was kind of our closest thing to a Larry Bird. You know, he was our star. He was our all-star, perennial all-star on the Celtics, our guy. And, uh, you know, it it just it was just a really, I think, uh, it was a great ceremony. Um, no one deserves it more than, than truth, honestly. Uh, he was through thick and thin. He was a member of the Celtics. Uh, they almost traded them a couple times. He never wanted to leave. And, uh, you know, it was just more than seeing them finally win a championship as somebody that knew that they had won 16 previous times and I didn't get to actually, you know, experience any of them. Uh, more than that was to see, uh, you know, Paul Pierce actually win a championship as a member of Celtics, uh, something that I never thought was going to happen, certainly. And, uh, you know, it was really exciting to see the whole ceremony and, to have that number 34 in the Raptors is kind of our guy now, you know. All those other numbers we can look up and we can say, oh, yeah, we know about Larry Bird, we know about uh, Kuzi, we know about all those guys. 
but Pierce now for anybody under the age of 30 uh, can look up to the Raptors and say we got one you know we got one up there yeah no question uh you know it was it was a really nice ceremony uh do you have any uh, particular Pierce memories like games you might have attended you, the, where you saw him play in person uh, your favorite memories of him yeah I actually I actually got to see I was lucky I got to see him play in person a bunch uh and there was a lot of good uh, good memories I mean everybody's obviously getting the point to a lot of the things that happened in the 08 playoffs and, and stuff like that. But when he uh, hit that shot in Al Harrington's face against the Pacers in the playoffs a couple of years before that, uh, he was jawing at him back and forth, and he was like, I'm just going to hit this three right in your face, and there's nothing that you can do about it. And he walked right up to the free three-point line, rose up, and drilled it right in his face. And I think that that's kind of just what Paul Pierce was, was just an assassin. You know, he was cold-blooded. Uh, he tra- he talked a lot of trash. He backed it up, and uh, when it was the the game was on the line, I mean there were very few people in the league that uh, that were better at than Paul Pierce in those types of situations. You know, even when he was playing, there was guys like Kobe that you know might have had a little bit more uh, you know credit given to them because they did it in finals games and stuff like that. But uh, Pierce was as clutch as they came. And uh, he was really, he was the Celtics for a very, very long time. And uh, he, he kind of, you know, this is the very least I think that the team could do for him uh, was to put his number up. Yeah, well, that's why uh, I think it was Shaquille O'Neal who gave him that nickname of the truth. That certainly uh, yeah. he backed it up. Uh, of course, uh, how fitting a, a kid from Inglewood, California, grew up just a few steps from the the fabulous Forum, and was a huge Lakers fan growing up. But ended up becoming, uh, you know, joined the enemy at least in his universe. And uh, we're very glad he did. My memory, my best memory of, of uh, watching a Pierce game in person actually goes back even a couple years uh, before the one you brought up, Evan, uh, 2002 Eastern Conference finals against the New Jersey Nets game three I was fortunate enough to attend this game uh, at the time it was the biggest it might still be the biggest comeback ever in a playoff game Celtics were down 26 early in the third quarter Pierce just had a huge game and in the fourth quarter alone he had 19 points and he just couldn't miss a shot uh, where the Celtics really had to score on every possession uh, to to pull off that tremendous comeback it also kind of sadly turned out to be their last victory of the year because the Nets won the next three games and the series and went on and lost to the Lakers in the finals but but, uh, and that was, you know, that was a team that was just Pierce, Walker, uh, and a few other cast-offs, and uh, they got to, you know, Game 6 of the Eastern Conference Finals that year. And, you know, really it kind of just laid the groundwork for what was to come. And, uh, you know, certainly if uh, Kevin Garnett stays healthy, maybe, the, you know, there's a second championship in there. And, of course, the Pierce legacy is living on through the fact that he gave permission to Danny Ainge to, to deal him to the Brooklyn Nets and, and the, the basket of goodies that the, the Celtics have uh, accumulated uh, over the last few years as a result of uh, all those Brooklyn Nets oh, yeah. draft picks. If they win another title with this core, with, you know, Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum and Kyrie, then we all owe Pierce another ring. <laughs> yeah, he, he deserves to, him and KG deserve other, you know a second ring for those with as much as as they did the first time. Yeah, pretty safe to say. I think ownership will make sure that they are uh, they get a ring for yeah. that one yeah. for, for sure. Well, Evan, uh, again, I want to thank you for uh, for joining us here. I also want to thank you too. Uh, you, you've got a you got a great following of fans, and uh, you brought a lot of them over to our uh, podcast the first time around. Hopefully, okay. they'll uh, check this one out as well. And I. I do, you know, I want to thank you for that too. As uh, we get more people uh, checking, checking out the Toddcast, uh, you know, you, you, like I say, you, you write.
write good stuff, uh, and uh, you, you cover th- you cover things other than football, right? Are you just a year-round football guy, pretty much? Or? Yeah, I cover other sports for uh, Sports Illustrated. I do, you know, basketball, all of them, pretty much. Uh, you know, SI is obviously not limited to it's Sports Illustrated, not Football Illustrated, even though we, it feels <laughs> like sometimes it's, it's still Football Illustrated without big the NFL is. These days, but yeah, I definitely do pay attention to other sports. Every once in a while, you'll see me tweeting something NBA related, or if there's a big trade or something like that in another league. Well, that's good to know. Maybe we can bring you back on to talk about some other sports. Although now, then again, the NFL is kind of a year-round sport anyway, so we can bring you on any time to talk football too. And it's certainly if you gonna... want to bring me on to talk Celtics, I, I am game. <laughs> I, I can I can talk Celtics almost as well as I can talk Pat. So. All right. Well, then I'll, let me put you on the spot quick. Is Hayward going to come back this season? I think he is. Why else is he shooting? <laughs> you know, like why? Why else is he doing all this rehab mm. so quickly? Uh, I think it's kind of the uh, the unwritten secret that they don't want to tell anybody that maybe Hayward comes back and plays like twenty minutes a night in the playoffs and just gives them something of a scoring punch off that bench because they their bench scoring is terrible and uh, you know obviously don't want to rush the guy back. But if he can give you uh, 10, 12 points off the bench in 20 minutes of the, of the playoff series, I mean, you got to take that. Yeah, I agree. I, I like the sound of that. I hope I hope it does come to fruition. Uh, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Well, Evan, again, thank you so much uh, for joining us here. Uh, this has been uh, another good uh, Toddcast. Again, you can check out Evan's work. Uh, follow him on Twitter, at EasyLazar. And, uh, of course, uh, the Naked boot podcast uh naked bootleg podcast which is the twitter handles at naked boot pod and of course you can check them out pat's pulpit boston herald and you know all the other links are out there on twitter so evan thank you again too much i need to consolidate <laughs> all right <laughs> all right well again don't forget to follow us on social media by searching time out for sports talk on facebook and twitter at tostbmc to get the links to the latest tost toddcast as soon as they're available Again, thank you to Evan Lazar. And until next time, this is Todd Bloniars. Thank you for checking out the TOST Toddcast right here on the Belmont Media Podcast Network.